You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Welcome. I'm Matt Hodges from Intercom, and today I'm sitting down with Jay Simons, the first VP of Marketing and now President of Atlassian. G'day, Jay. How's it going, Matt? Good, mate. While I had the pleasure of working with you for six years before I joined Intercom, uh, maybe just for the sake of our listeners, you could briefly introduce yourself. So uh, I'm Jay Simons. I'm the president of Atlassian. I joined the company in, boy, 2008. And prior to that, I worked for uh, about 10 years for a company called Plumtree Software that got acquired by BEA Systems, and then BEA got acquired by Oracle, and that's sort of the history. Grew up in Washington, hailed from San Francisco since 97. Great. And what is it exactly uh, that you guys do at Atlassian? So we make uh, collaboration software for teams, and our key products are hopefully products that your listeners have heard of, Jira for managing uh, shared projects and activities, uh, Confluence for creating and sharing content as a team, HipChat for team messaging and communication, including audio and video and chat, uh, Bitbucket for development teams to share code, and then finally Jira Service Desk for service team collaboration, so things like IT and legal help desks. Great. So you guys got quite a few products then. We do. We do. And how many employees are you guys at now? We just crossed the 1,500 employee mark worldwide. Wow, that's incredible. I remember back when I started, uh, you guys were only at 90 people. How many people have you added in the last year? Probably. Last year, we've seen a lot of growth. So I think we added over 700 people in the year. So I think now, probably about one uh, one in every two Atlassians are less than a year old. A lot of growth. So at 13 years old and growing at that scale, uh, has growth slowed down for you over the years? It's actually uh, the opposite. So we, we've had three successive years of acceleration, which I think is unusual uh, for a company of our size. Um, and we're, you know, we're just shy of hitting uh, what we uh, penned 10 years ago as our big hairy-ass goal, like our BHAG, which was 50,000 customers. So we're um, just shy of 50,000 customers globally. And for us, a, a customer we define really conservatively as just a, a single organization. So it wouldn't matter if we sell the Ford um, in 10 different ways. If we sell the Ford Brazil or, or Ford Inc., if you've got Ford in your email address, you count as one of those 50,000 customers. Great. So that kind of touches on a little bit uh, about what I know you guys refer to as your land and expand strategy. Um, could you talk about that bit, a little bit in terms of uh, how you believe it's impacted your growth over the years? So we, as I mentioned, we have a number of products. And uh, you know, there, I think there's a couple of logical starting places for customers. And so land and expand for us, um, begins with understanding, you know, what are sort of the key critical pain points that customers have that we can we can help solve, and we're pretty thoughtful about um, not trying to overcomplicate, uh, you know, the marketing of of what our products can do by encouraging a customer to adopt too many things too quickly, and so Jira is is a really common starting point for teams. Jira sort of sits at the center of organizing, as I mentioned earlier, shared projects and shared activities, and so it kind of becomes the, you know, the brain of what your team is trying to accomplish and, and organizes all that for your team. Um, and you know, we find that, that if a customer is looking for that, um, we want to help them understand that we've got Jira and it can solve a specific problem. And once actually Jira becomes successfully adopted and users become engaged, we then get permission, I think, to talk to that customer about products, you know, B through F or, you know, kind of other things that we think could augment and integrate with Jira, but also are going to solve a, a different set of problems than, you know, than the customer might have had originally. So for us, it's been key. You know, we've got, uh, I think, a lot of opportunity once we land 
um, an initial customer to expand you know, with, with uh, other parts of the portfolio over time. Great. I think that's a nice segue into starting to talk about your go-to-market strategy and how you've structured the marketing team since you were Atlassian's first VP of marketing. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what the marketing team looked like when you first started back in 2008. Uh, boy, so in 2008, I think we had uh, five or six people in the marketing organization, super tiny. Um, you know, and the team was uh, a really smart and wonderful collection of generalists, which, which I think is um, pretty common for companies that are younger and smaller. And a generalist, you know, somebody I think that could off-road across a number of different marketing disciplines, anything from um, PR to demand generation to product marketing. You have one person that basically was pretty adaptable and could do what you needed to do at the time. Um, and, you know, what attracted me to, to Atlassian, I think, really early on was it had uh, the key ingredients needed for great marketing, uh, which were um, awesome products. You know, it's really, really difficult to do great marketing for crappy products. And so Atlassian had awesome products. It had um, really fanatical customers and strong word of mouth. And I think any marketer will tell you that um, word of mouth is, the, is really the hardest thing to earn. It, it comes from the first point, great products. And if you've got customers that, I think, see a lot of value from what you do, they become promoters for that. And in effect, they join your marketing organization, helping spread the word about what you do and the problems that you solve for them and, and uh, hopefully for companies like them. Um, and then the third thing is it had, like, really meaningful, interesting problems that our products were solving. So, you know, team collaboration, like, uh, there are a billion people on the planet that, that are, are working in some capacity, and those billion, billion people are, are part of millions of teams and millions of companies around the, around the globe. And um, helping sort of unleash the potential of what they can accomplish by providing products that help them work better together, I think, is a, a problem that, that every company in every industry in every corner of the planet has, and so that's pretty exciting. Um, and then I think the fourth thing uh, was that the company itself was just um, extremely data-driven and, um, and oriented around experimentation, which I think as a marketer, uh, you know, 10 years ago wasn't as common as it is today, but I think marketers now um, have a lot more access to data, and using that data can, can basically try things more, and I think it, it shortens the cycle for understanding what's effective and, and what you could use to encourage growth or adoption. Great. And so those things that originally drew you to the company, uh, how did you or how did they inform how you went about building up the marketing team from that point? You mentioned you were a team of five. What did you focus on in your first six to 12 months and how did the team evolve in that initial period? Early on, we focused on, um, on you know, nailing and enhancing position. I mean, that everything begins with, with, I think, really understanding the customer problem and how to, how to message in the most effective way that you've got a solution to that problem. I mean, that's what you're trying to do as a marketer is basically describe what you do for the customer in a way that um, helps them understand the value they're going to get from your product or your service or, or what you do. So spent a long time uh, doing that. And then I think uh, you know, over time began to focus on specialization where uh, we had one person that might have been spread across demand generation and PR and product marketing. We began to expand the team and really find people that were specialized in a certain uh, marketing discipline, like PR as an example. Um, and naturally, as you grow, you've got more surface area where you could have one person kind of concentrate on that discipline. Um, and then as you grow further, you've got multiple, but you begin to, to even become more specialized. So take demand generation as an example. Like early on, you might have someone that can kind of move across PR, demand gen, and product marketing. And then you have someone that just focuses on demand generation. But demand generation by itself is 
you know, has sort of a lot of surface area to cover. Now today, we probably have a demand generation team, you know, of like probably over 10 people where we might have a couple of people that are only focused on social advertising and demand generation through social channels. Another group of people that are only focused on um, on display advertising. That becomes the thing that they're, it's, you know, it's a skill or a muscle that they're really, really adept at and they're constantly focused on um, on improving or refining that muscle and getting better at it. And so I think early on we, we, we focused a, you know, initially on positioning and then kind of expanding the set of capabilities that we wanted to apply to growth. And then once you build those and you find people that are really good at it, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper. So you mentioned a couple of different functions there, um, specifically demand generation, then also the need to really hone in and nail the positioning for each of your products. Um, could you also talk a little bit about the other functions outside of demand generation that allowed you to structure and build out the team? So uh, yeah, sure. So we, we you know we began I think with a with a really deep core investment in product marketing that was important to us because we've got a wide portfolio of products and so you need um, individuals that understand who the buyer is, understand the problem that they're solving, understand how to describe the features and how those features you know apply to problems that customers have. So we, we you know we had a, a relatively large product marketing team. Um, we had a group that was focused on demand generation uh, that would work with product marketers to understand when I want to run a campaign and sort of build awareness for a particular product or, or a customer pain point, um, what are the different channels that I could use to, to get a customer's attention and, and start to push messages through? Uh, we had a communications group that focused on PR, really important awareness building tactic, um, just to help the company and its products get mentioned in places that, uh, that people were congregating. Uh, we had a design and development team because naturally the web is a really important broad channel for us to reach a large part of the market. And, and again, a, um, you know, a part of like any campaign is going to involve some deliverable that you're going to produce and publish and share with people. Um, we had, what else did we have? We had uh, uh, kind of a, a creative and interactive team that would, again, work with campaign and web to come up with different things um, that we could do to, to get uh, sort of get attention and try to do something unique as a marketer. So a small example of that might be, you know, we, um, this is a long time ago now, we ran a campaign called Cash for Clunkers that actually coincided with the U.S. federal government um, uh, car allowance buyback program where they were trying to give you a rebate if you uh, traded in your old gas guzzling car for a more fuel-efficient car. And so we ran a campaign called Cash for Clunkers that did something similar where we encouraged um, you know, companies that had a competitor product to basically trade in that competitor product in exchange for ours, um, you know, for, for, you know, a little bit of a discount or something. So, and, you know, the manifestation of that requires a lot of people working together to, um, to both create and, and kind of promote and put that campaign in action. Um, I think it's sort of the core. You, you I mean, tell me, am I missing any? No, I think you, I think you covered <laughs> them all. So in, when you started, you were about five, and I think probably within the span of 12 months, would you say you were about a team of 20, or was that what you were at? Yeah, we probably close to, you know, close to um, 4x the team. That's probably a good guess. And at that scale, as a VP of marketing, um, what did a normal day look like for you? And a normal day for me, uh, back then, actually, it was probably a lot more pen to paper. Um, that I do now. And so, you know, I, I would spend a lot of time thinking about positioning, pos positioning, working with product marketers on uh, kind of refining copy. And as a marketer, nothing beats spending time thinking of that 
perfect headline or the perfect description using the least amount of words in sort of a clever way, I think, to position your product. That's super fun. Um, I would also spend a lot of time with the team thinking of different creative ways to, um, to get noticed, right? Because um, I think, you know, the, the challenge for marketers is not to do anything gimmicky necessarily, but to to create kind of unique ways to rise above the fold or at least to, to get attention. So I'd spend a lot of time doing that. Um, you know, a lot of time kind of coaching, even though we had a, we added a bunch of people that had specialization or, or experience in certain disciplines, there were also a lot of, of people who were um, new to the craft of marketing and, and spending time kind of working with them to understand how to, how to do it better. If you could do it all again and start from scratch, is there anything that you'd do differently? Uh, I think, I think one thing that we would, I think we would ad- adopt early on is more more a, of a bringing marketing closer connected to product, and so that's been a big change for us over the past five years. Is and I think that's actually more common now for SaaS companies is having you know thinking about the 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 customer journey in the funnel all the way through from I'm learning about your product or company the first time to I become an active, engaged user. And uh, traditionally, marketing focused a lot more on building awareness and getting people to the point where they were trying a product. And then they'd sort of like sales in a traditional company kind of takes over. And in most um, enterprise software, sales is responsible for conversion. Um, in our organization, we don't have a traditional sales organization, so marketing is really has has focused on conversions, responsible responsible for converting from kind of from trial into actually product usage. And what we've now um, done in the past couple of years is uh, is moved marketing even closer to product, where they're now focused on. Um, active user engagement paired with product, right? Because in some cases there might be some feature changes or feature ch- or refinement that's needed to improve engagement. Um, but you know there are three main metrics that we track as a marketing organization. One is traffic, right? Like uh, are we becoming more effective at building awareness for the company and the product and getting more and more people to discover what we're about? That's number one. Number two is um, trials, and so for all the people that are coming to discover. Um, what we're about, uh, are we are we able to convince them to actually give us a try? And then the third is uh, monthly active usage. And, uh, and that one actually is almost more important than the other two because in a word-of-mouth model, um, it becomes the most leading indicator of your future success. If your active usage isn't growing, then there's a really good probability that your traffic and your trial volume uh, will also not grow in the future. And uh, so marketing can't by itself be responsible for active usage entirely because, again, it's closely paired to what's created in the product and how that needs to be refined. But I think they play a really important role in understanding um, with product teams how to improve it. And from there, once you understand how to measure active usage, like you really should correlate that all the way back to marketing activity. And so simple example is I... I I should be able to measure uh, how a marketing campaign actually drives downstream active usage of a product. If I'm spending a lot of money on a paid channel, as an example, and that generates a lot of traffic, um, but that traffic doesn't convert into trial usage, um, and even from the minimal trial usage, it converts into abysmal active usage, potentially might be a tactic that, that I want to reconsider or avoid because ultimately the end game is to uh, encourage more people to use the product. Also, the inverse is, is 
it gives me more fodder to actually figure out what refinements I might need to make in the product um, to improve conversions, uh, conversion of active users from that channel, and I want to improve that channel over time. So long-winded answer your question, but I, I would, I would uh, focus earlier in orientation on having marketing uh, and marketers connect all the way through to the funnel because the customer journey is one that ultimately they should be thinking about kind of cradle to grave. Uh, you mentioned those three metrics. Um, it sounds like the market is holy grail to have insight into all the way through the funnel in terms of where they're coming from and when you, where you're spending your dollars. Uh, how did you guys get to a position where you could actually measure that? A lot of hard work. Um, I mean, we we began uh, we began early early on with a with a, a pretty deep investment in um, what we refer to as a growth and acquisition team, and you know maybe the one difference is in our marketing organization there's a fair amount of developers and and like people that can actually write code, and uh, we gave them the ability to write uh, and and sh- and ship code effectively into the product. Now that we had to put some uh, some rails. Uh, that would sort of govern what they could or could not do because in some cases they're pushing code into live customer instances. Uh, more often than not, they're not they're pushing code into kind of live trial instances. But the goal was if a marketer is, you know, is is investing a bunch of, of time, money, and energy into an activity to generate awareness and hopefully generate people that are going to kick the tires on the product, they should be closely connected to people that can actually influence changes in the product to improve conversion and to improve engagement and then active usage. And so uh, we spent a lot of time um, sort of defining that and then, uh, and then hiring and onboarding um, very technical talent that were paired closely with people that might, you know, remember that the hard part of, of marketing is is it is, um, in many ways, this unique combination of, of um, kind of left brain, right brain, right? Like where you need to be equally parts creative. Um, boy, I wonder if if I describe this certain thing this way or if I um, actually prompted a user with um, a quick description of how a feature would work before they use it. Um, equal parts that with actually the ability to sort of measure and analyze whether or not that that um, had uh, the effect that you were seeking. Um, so we started there, I think, with kind of deep experimentation around um, conversion from visit to trial. And then the next phase was um, to go all the way through into active usage and then understand, you know, how do we encourage more engagement? What are the triggers inside of product that um, that lead to a higher likelihood of becoming an engaged user. What does an engaged user actually do? How often are they likely to, to beget more engaged users? And, and if we discover that, wow, um, you know, once a user creates X number of projects and comments on X number of pages or invites X number of, of teammates, they become somebody that's, that's a really, really valuable kind of word of mouth champion or promoter. And so what are the things that we could do both in our marketing and then in our product onboarding to create more and more and more of those? And and again, that's not purely a marketing responsibility, nor is it purely a product responsibility. It's really the marriage of, of both of those two teams working in concert to figure out how the activities to generate um, uh, awareness and sort of more interest um, and the activities that actually convert that interest into into really meaningful active users, how they work together. So it sounds like the journey that you guys have been on in the evolution of marketing Atlassian is very much in line with an article that Thomas Tungus wrote 
recently on the expanding role of marketing in SaaS companies. Um, and you mentioned those three specific metrics. Uh, as marketing is now responsible for phases further down the funnel, how do you go about giving ownership to a particular metric to each of the different functions of marketing? So is there a particular team that owns the traffic number? Is there another team that owns the leads number? Uh, there is. And, and I think that the really difficult part about this is that even though you can be responsible for um, the growth of a metric, uh, there is so much interplay between the metrics that, that, that you, you have to be super tuned into the interplay. So like as an example, um, it's, it is not difficult. Uh, well, we shouldn't say not difficult, but it, you know, it, it is possible for marketers to generate, generate a lot of bad traffic. Right? Like you could do things that, that drive a whole bunch of, uh, of, of the wrong type of interest to your product. And so if you're only responsible for traffic, you'd say, wow, I just won. Right? Like I grew traffic year over year by 35 or 40 or 50%. Um, and if it's the wrong traffic, if it's tra- traffic that's least likely to convert, um, then you wasted your time. You wasted the company's money, and, and you actually, in some cases, may have uh, impacted um, your colleague's metric of trial growth, right? Because um, you're going to make the conversion rate look, look poor. Uh, so, you know, in some cases, the, the interplay is actually the conversion rate of one metric to another, and where that conversion rate um, degrades or get, gets worse, it means that upstream, potentially somebody is, is, um, is either doing the wrong, wrong things or not being sensitive about kind of the quality of the, tr- of the, the metric that they're driving. Um, but again, the inverse is that also creates an opportunity to figure out whether or not that interplay, the conversion rate can be improved. So, you know, if I, if I do uh, an activity in marketing that, that uh, creates a whole bunch of interest and drives a bunch of new, uh, new eyeballs or sort of new visitors to the site, and they're not actually converting at that steady rate into trial, what are the things that I would need to do in order to improve that conversion rate? It's possible that there's an opportunity um, with that traffic. I just haven't discovered it yet. Um, and so, again, another long-winded answer, but it, it's complicated. It, it's like we find it, it's super important to have people focused on um, both the growth and then the fidelity, like the, the quality of that metric. And the quality isn't something that they can do exclusively. They have to be inclusive with sort of either upstream or downstream um, activities that are, that are related. Because, again, it's the customer journey all the way through. You're going to start with reading about a press article, being influenced by an advertisement, hearing from a friend in a bar that you should try something. Um, and then you're going to go and you're going to try to discover it. And then you're going to try it. And then you're going to become an active, engaged user. And that journey is one continuous thing, even though there's lots of people that were involved in different stages of it. Right. I think that's definitely something that's rung true uh, as we've built out marketing and e-com as well. So in your opinion, um, if those are the ways that you measure how marketing is working for you at Atlassian, what have been the biggest achievements in your opinion, or put another way, what are the key things that have really moved the needle for you guys? I think uh, probably two big things. Um, you know, one is, uh, one is being clear about what we're promoting, uh, what the buyer need is, um, messaging that I think very effectively. Um, Prioritizing the customer experience, you know, back to to land the land and expand in the way we think about it. I think uh, you know, with a company with multiple products, it would be easy to say, you know, when a customer comes in looking for a pair of pants, let's make sure we talk to them about the socks, the shorts, the shoes, the shirt, the belt. Like, let's 
display the whole wardrobe for them because um, we've got lots of clothes that they could put on their backs. And uh, in some cases that may work and it, it may be appropriate. In, in our case, um, we've really focused on if you came looking for a pair of pants or a pair of shorts, let's make sure you understand we've got the best pair of pants and the shorts, shorts around. And we may do very small and subtle references to other parts of the wardrobe, but we don't want to try too hard to convince you that you need to buy everything all at once. And so I think that's, that's really aided our success is because customers come looking for um, answers to, you know, one set of problems that they have. And if you start to talk to them about, you know, 18 other problems they may not discover they have, in some cases you're just putting speed bumps that you're requiring them to, to drive over. That's one one thing. And I think the other, uh, the other key part of our success has just been a focus on, on continuously improving parts of the funnel. And, you know, I've said before that, that um, those continuous improvements are, um, are in some cases microscopic, right? Like, you know, uh, marketing, marketing is sort of a, a game of, of inches. And you, you know, I'll butcher the sports uh, metaphor, but you, you want to move the ball down the field. You just want to be going in a forward motion. And I think oftentimes um, where, where people um, get that wrong is they think I'm going to run an A-B test or I'm going to run an experiment and I'm always looking for long yards, right? Like I want to see a 10% or 15% or 20% improvement in some metric that I'm tracking. And I think that's oftentimes why experimentation um, gets uh, deprioritized because you don't see those. And what you fail to realize is if you simply focus on, you know, the 0.5% improvement over a period of six or 12 months, that adds up to your 10%. Um, and, and I think that we've got that orientation. We've got the orientation around always just looking for really, really small wins because, you know, in our case, like we, we, you know, we run a, a, a really high velocity volume business. And so, you know, even a really, really small win can equate to hundreds, if not thousands of whatever the metric is, whether it's, you know, new trials or new customers. And, um, that can be really meaningful over the long run. And so we focused on that. Do you think your focus uh, and taking that approach stems from the fact that Alaskan built its success on being one of the first self-serve business models in enterprise software? Uh, I think in part. You know, I mean, it, it, as a marketer, um, even though you know, I, I actually began my career in technology sales, and so the first you know six years of, of uh, my professional career were actually in you know, hardcore enterprise selling, carrying a bag, having a quota, um, really expensive software with, you know, 12-month sales cycles. And one thing that attracted me to the company was um, in absence of that, as a marketer, you actually got to run the ball all the way down the field, which I think maybe it was the sales orientation in me, but that was super exciting. And, you know, where sales tends to focus on one-to-one conversion, marketing can focus on one-to-many. And so you have that kind of scale aspect where you can think the things that I'm going to do um, hopefully will have a profound measurable impact, not just on one customer that I get to talk to, but on hundreds or thousands. And that was super exciting. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it, it, in absence of having People talk to people and focus on conversion. Marketers have to figure out different ways, and our business have to figure out different ways of using data um, to kind of improve their conversion over time. So you guys are actually famous for reaching $100 million in revenue without a single salesperson. Has that changed at all? You guys have grown and started to sell more upmarket? No. Um, and in some cases, or in many cases, bucking convention, right? I think the company's always heard, uh, yeah, you know, maybe your model will work to $5 million, but it won't work 
you know, it won't get you to 10, or maybe it'll get you to 10, but it won't get you to 100, and uh, maybe it'll get you to 100, but it won't get you to 300, and, you know, now the refrain we hear is, all right, maybe it'll get you to 300, but it's not going to get you to a billion. At some stage, you're going to have to change, and uh, I think the flaw there is, you know, there's a couple things. Like, one um, is, you know, we are not uh, anti-sales. We're we're really pro-customer service, pro-customer automation, and uh, and so we're sort of ruthlessly focused on helping the customer serve themselves. And and I think that's what actually what, what, what most customers want. If you think of yourself as a buyer, the reason that you need to talk to a person is when it's too hard to answer the question yourself. Like even when you want to buy something online, you know you you you. you I mean, at Amazon, you don't instinctively think I actually want to talk to a a sales rep at Amazon to help me buy what I'm looking for because they made it super simple for you to find what you're looking for, to get recommendations on whether or not it's a high quality product that other people have purchased in the past, that there's a trust there and it's super, super, super easy. And enterprise software, I think, um, doesn't need to be different, right? Even though enterprise software, I think, is characterized by being complex, uh, you should focus on reducing the complexity versus compensating for that complexity by needing someone to explain it. Um, and you know the the two the two companies that I think are are useful illustrations for us when we think about our model is you know one is Tesla, and Tesla uh, I think is is not a threat to the automotive industry because they've they've they're building a superior car I think that's one of the reasons but I think the real reason they're a threat to the automotive industry is because they're building a better distribution model for that car um, Tesla famously publishes exactly what the car is going to cost, and they don't discount. And you can go to kind of a local showroom, and the person there um, doesn't really care if you buy the product. Um, they're going to help you if you have got questions, but Tesla's MO is to put as much information as possible into your hands um, and let you make the decision. And when Tesla has a product that's in the 20 to 40K price point, it's game over because, quite frankly, that's how all of us want to buy a car. We, we want to know that we're not getting screwed. We're paying the same fair price that everyone else paid and that we can understand everything about the car. The other company that I think is, is an interesting um, analog is Costco. You know, like uh, Costco, we go there, set bulk aside for, for, for a minute, but we largely go there because we know they've got great product at great price. And they sort of curate those two things for us as a consumer. Now, when I go into the store, sometimes I'm confused and there's a lot of things around that I can't find. And I know that there's somebody in a red vest that I could I could find and ask for help. And that person actually isn't there to sell me anything. They're there to offer great customer service, friendly customer service. And they know that Costco is mostly oriented around helping me serve myself. Uh, I know that if I need to buy a television set, that probably um, the most affordable, highest quality television set that I could buy is in Costco. Now they've got 20 of them, and I've got to do my own research to figure out what's the one that I want to buy for me. No one is really going to try to uh, push me one way or the other. And I think if Costco did have people that were focused on selling me more TVs, they would definitely have to charge more for them. And all of a sudden it would destroy the value um, to begin with, right? Like I, I, I probably wouldn't go there to, to buy a TV. And uh, so I, th I think in, in many ways, like Atlassian is pioneering, uh, I think just a different way um, to sell software to other businesses, mostly focusing on automation and then empowering the customer to self-serve and also providing just great service along the way. Like we're, we've got a, uh, a group of people that we say to customers, if you need any help at all, we're here to help you. The difference is those people aren't focused necessarily on selling, they're focused on serving. So for all our listeners out there that are just about or um, just beginning to invest in sales and marketing, are there any early optimizations that you'd suggest they'd make? Uh, I think, you know, one is, um, one is maybe to be patient. 
you know, that especially if you're you're considering being a multi-product company, customers don't need everything all at once. Um, uh, what's another one would probably be. It sounds like cliche, cliche, but you know, definitely spend a lot of time understanding the customer's perspective and think about things from their perspective. And I think too often marketers um, think about and businesses really think about things from their own perspective. I'm going to describe this feature, um, or you know, even even the notion of sales. Sales is uh, can be super effective because human beings are are great at influencing human beings. But sales, you know, is a is sort of a me first perspective. Like I want to sell. Um, and you know, and I think you see some of that change in in um, in companies describing even their sales teams as customer success, right? Which is a di- it's, it's sort of a customer oriented flavor of effectively the same function. Like I want to help you, and what's in it for me is I got to sell you something. What's in it for you is you're going to buy something that's super useful for you. Um, so that that'd be another one. And then the the third one might be. Um, you know, I, I, you know, just be really data oriented. I think, especially where we're building uh, for technology companies, where we're building and, and creating things online, we just have so much information that we can use uh, that's sort of at our finger fingertips to understand how to how to get better at what we're doing. And I think that applies across the entire spectrum of disciplines and activities within marketing, um, but also across all of the other customer facing functions like sales, um, support, right? Like too often sales. Uh, even in, tr- in companies that have sales organizations, they're not really data dri- as data-driven as they could be. Like, there's so much information that would help understand who are the companies that you should be speaking to. Um, you know, what what are the the the, the signals? Whether it's um, you know user uh, browsing behavior or whether or not it's uh, you know a, a past. Um, you know, professional history of the person that you're trying to contact. What are the sort of things that I think would make them either less likely or more likely to be somebody that you would want to talk to? And then what are the messages that you think would be most persuasive given their, their situation? Support is the same thing. Um, like, h- how can we use data to, to drive uh, less customer contact into our support channels, not more of them? And so, um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be the three. You know, we've talked about the success of Alassian's land and expand strategy, and a lot of that is due in part to, you know, your very product-focused approach, but also the fact that you have multiple products to sell over the life cycle of a customer. I'm really interested to learn how how does having 12 products or multiple products to sell, how does that impact how you approach positioning the company? Well, uh, we have to... Uh, so a couple of things. Like one is is across multiple products, we under we want to understand um, first and foremost what what are the problems that they solve, and uh, from the customer's perspective, what are they going to be looking for? What are the pain points that they're trying to identify? Um, how, how 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 can we, you know, how can we uh, marry what we do with what they're they're seeking? Um, that's number one. And number two, we also want to understand what are the products that are that are sort of most prominently landing. Because not every not every product is gonna uh, is gonna have the same um, kind of land uh, opportunity within an account. Um, there may be products in our model that are uh, more expand that were way more effective selling uh, to a company once we've earned their trust and gained their permission to talk to them about other problems and. Um, that we can solve, and it's really important to understand that because if you don't, um, you may spend uh, a lot of needless cycles trying to trying to message a, a product um, more broadly than you have permission to play early on. Um, so that's uh, point number two, and then point number three is it forces us uh, to once you zoom out from the individual product level and you really want to understand from a portfolio perspective, like 
what does Atlassian do for me? Like on a brand level, we want to be able to describe. And the way we do it is we say, you know, we, we make team collaboration software and our products, even though there's 15 of them or so and they do a whole bunch of different things, when you pull out 30,000 feet, all of them work in concert to help teams organize, discuss, and complete work as a team. And so, and I think that 30,000 foot level is really important because it, it provides in some cases a foundation, but just a framing for people to understand, okay, I get the box that all the things are going to fit in. I might not need all 15 of them and I might only need one and, and then it'll take me three years before I need two or three or four, whatever it is. Um, but at least I understand what, what, what box you're going to provide um, kind of different products for me and I can start to look for different things that I could use them for. Great. And getting to that 30,000-foot view, I think, is uh, incredibly challenging. Um, so last question for you, Jay. Uh, if you were to start a marketing team from scratch at a SaaS company tomorrow, what would, the, what would be the first few positions that you would hire for? Boy, that's a good question. I think I would probably – I probably um, would look for generalists. Uh, so people, I think, that have – uh, either the, cap- the capacity or the capability to move broadly across disciplines so they can learn really quickly, or I would look for someone that's had you know, experience as a generalist across uh, different disciplines. Um, someone that I think is um, customer and, and product or market oriented. And so typically I might start with a product marketer that, um, whose first job is going to be to understand the customer, the market, the problem that they're solving, uh, and then um, has the capacity, I think, to to write really well and, and to develop a message or, um, you know, or, or a set of talking points if it's for a sales organization or, um, you know, a positioning statement that I think really nets out um, what I'm going to do for the customer that they'll find valuable. Um, and so I'd, I'd probably start there. And, um, and then, you know, someone that I think is also one-to-many oriented like marketers, I think need to think broadly about the full audience that they're going to reach. Once you've defined it, then you start to think, okay, what are the different ways that I can get in front of this large, large group of people? Um, or just the group of people, even if it isn't large. Like, what are the different channels that I could use to get their attention? Um, and then, uh, not to overload this person with too many things, but I, I think also somebody that's a, li- a little bit out of the box, um, somebody that thinks creatively about... Um, you're really good at this. Someone thinks really creatively about ways to um, to get people's attention, like not the unconventional, because the unconventional is easy. And I think in some cases, the unconventional channels are, uh, you know, are, are um, overloaded. And so then you start to to need to think, well, could I do something different where somebody's going to go, wow, I hadn't seen that before, and all of a sudden you've got my interest. And um, and so sort of that kind of combined skill set would be my first hire. I'd, I'd be looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Jay. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Matt. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.